You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. My name is Josh Johnson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Clay Maynard. We're two guys committed to the gospel and seeing our brothers and sisters be captivated all over again by the beauty and glory of Christ. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoy the episode. Clay, how's it going, dude? It's going great, man. How are you? Uh, I can admit that I have been better. (laughs) If uh, you're listening and you don't follow us on Twitter, you might be out of the loop. So we're just going to fill you in really quick. On Thursday, I sat down to edit this episode and in the process of searching through my computer and my external hard drive and the thumb drive that this gets recorded on, I had deleted this episode, which is just so encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are again at seven o'clock on a Saturday morning, the Saturday before this episode goes live. Josh, we got a whole practice run on this episode. We really did. I'm not sure that's going to benefit the listeners any. I mean, I hope it does. (laughs) That'd be good if if we did it better than last time. Because Josh, if I can be honest, let's just be real about this. You're beating yourself up for deleting an episode. But if you had to delete one. Oh, this was it for sure. I, I don't know why, but that night we came up here and recorded this episode, it, it just, we, we were off our game and I, 100%. I, would, I don't want people to actually see what that looks like when you're a podcast host and you can't get your words in the right order and you can't say things the way you're trying to yeah, say Yeah, I don't them. know how many times that night we just, we would have to be like, oh, okay, stop. I've got to say that over again. <laughs> it just, and it took us like what, two hours to record that episode? Yes, it did. It was a mess. It was a mess. It's actually interesting because this episode, we're going into the two ordinances. Yeah which is the next topic. If you've been following along with our podcast, you know that we've been doing the Baptist distinctives, revisiting scripture, recommitting to be faithful to God's word. And on each of these Baptist distinctives, you know, we've talked about it and had great conversations. This one, for whatever reason, has been even more fun. I don't know why, but it feels like there's been a lot of conversation around oh, baptism yeah. in the last couple of weeks for us. Yeah. And that's good for us because as we're revisiting scripture, it kind of challenges us and asks us to, to revisit assumptions that we've made maybe. Uh, it's easy to look at what your church has done or, or what you grew up experiencing and think that's just the way to do it or that's the way not to do it. But uh, this one has been really interesting for that reason. And we've experienced this to some degree with all of the topics because mm-hmm. as we dig into these conversations, we're, we're learning more. We're finding things that we've not seen before. And, but for this one in particular, I fe- and then even within the last couple of days, since we recorded this the last time, the subject of baptizing um, children yep. came up. Uh, thanks, Brian Sams, yeah. for uh, challenging that us. That was and a making, fun conversation. And making us rethink everything. Yeah, but we had a good conversation yeah. on, on Twitter with a few guys who, it was just a, a really great conversation that was cordial, that was, that was civil, that was, it was really nice to talk to other Christians about a very important subject and to just allow one another to ask important questions and hear each other and be challenged and walk away thinking, man, I need to think about this. I need to yep. pray about this. I need to go back to the scripture. Uh, he mentioned that reference. I never thought of that. Let me go look at that mm-hmm. passage again. 
It's really cool. Yeah, I agree. It was a lot of fun yesterday to just kind of banter back and forth, if you will, with different people and hear people's thoughts and perspectives and then look back and say, man, it's probably a good thing we deleted that audio so we can, <laughs> so we <laughs> we can, can start over. Well, and the, the interesting thing is I loved that conversation because it's emblematic of what I would like disagreement or even not disagreement, but just perspective when you're sharing perspectives that are different yeah. from each other. I've, I think that should be what it looks like. The conversation we had was awesome. And it wasn't uh, where people got defensive for what they've always done or why do you got to question things or this is what this is just the right way and everybody should do it my way. I, I think Christians should be better about this. Talking to one another, hearing one another, revisiting the scriptures. We sharpen each other that way. And it's encouraging to see several people out there that we were talking to yesterday kind of jumped in the same boat that we find ourselves in right now yeah. in that they're asking questions like, you know, this is what I've, what I think or what I've been taught. But now that, you know, these different circumstances are in my life, I'm really kind of rethinking, reevaluating what my position is. And that's, it's encouraging to know that we're, you know, we're not the only guys sitting around asking these questions and yeah. pushing back on what we've always necessarily seen possibly. Well, and the interesting thing is where the Bible is not ultra clear. Let's, let's put it that way. Where the Bible may have models or examples in scripture, but it doesn't nail everything down just so. It's interesting because there is some freedom for how we implement how we do certain things. It's not negotiable whether or not we baptize people. Right. It's not negotiable whether or not we take the Lord's Supper as, as believers in Christ, if we're going to be a faithful church and, and faithful Christians. But what is up for discussion is how, what exactly that looks like. And I think some of the reasons the Bible is not ultra clear and it, and it gives some examples, but it doesn't nail it all down descriptively, or I'm sorry, prescriptively. It describes examples, but it doesn't prescribe to the nth degree all of these things. And it might be because in different contexts, there are, other, there are things that work better in some places than others. Mm -hmm. And even the difference between the first century and today, and I know in the United States at least, the difference between the first century church and United States Christianity today oh, it's, is it's a vast difference. It's vastly different, right? And so I think God is wise enough. I don't think I know. God's wise enough to look through the scope of time and realize there's a lot of different ways to ap apply some of this stuff. And you might have to make adjustments in how you're doing it based on unique challenges. Yep. And so, but it's still good for us to talk about it because it allows you to revisit your context and say, is this the best way to do this for the, for the community that I'm trying to reach and for the church that I'm serving? I think we, we talk about these things and we come to, you know, various conclusions, but the ultimate conclusion being these things are not gospel issues. So there's no reason to be upset with each other or separate from each other over a disagreement, a disagreement of mm -hmm. when a person is baptized or should there be a discipleship process or should your church partake of communion every week or once a month or every quarter? You know, we have, there's, there's room for liberty and definitely room for grace with one another to work these things out in our individual context. Yeah. I would love one day maybe to have an, uh, have a, a podcast episode on the different tiers of issues biblically. Like what is the first order issue versus what is a, you know, secondary or tertiary issue. Like what, that would be a great conversation. Yeah. I saw a, a tweet, I believe it was from Toby England, where he said, we have to have degrees of confidence, different degrees of confidence within our, within our theological framework. And I'm paraphrasing, I probably am not saying yeah, exactly he how he yesterday. said it. Yeah, but he basically said, he was basically saying, 
So the Easter is a non-negotiable. The resurrection is non-negotiable. But whether it happened on Thursday night or Friday or whatever, like right. you, we can we can disagree about that. This is not a gospel issue. And to you, what you to the point you just made. Let's have a little bit of grace and let's let people disagree without treating them like they're like, how dare you? Yeah. Let's you know where where there is not a need for absolute conformity. Let's not take ourselves so seriously. Sure. Absolutely. You know? I completely agree. Well, today we're going to continue our conversation on the Baptist distinctives. Today's topic is uh, the two ordinances. There are two biblical ordinances, that being baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to take baptism first, and then we'll come back around to the Lord's Supper. The word baptize in our English Bibles is transliterated from the Greek word baptizo, which means to submerge or immerse. And there are several different times that we see this used in the New Testament. We see that Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter number three. Um, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said in Matthew 28, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and do what? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So Christ added baptism as a integral part of Great Commission teaching and ministry. Um, when we continue reading into the book of Acts, we see that those that were saved at Pentecost were baptized and added to the church. Acts 2 says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3000 souls. Paul talks about in Romans 6, how we are buried in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life in identification with Christ. He says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We see in Acts chapter number eight, Philip baptizing Samaritans that had believed. We see him baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch later on in Acts chapter number eight. Throughout church history, we know that being a Baptist <laughs> it kind of entails the whole idea of baptism by immersion. The London Baptist mm -hmm. Confession, it says, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be under the party baptized, the sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remissions of sin, and of, being, uh, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So really, Clay, the... The truth about baptism here is that baptism is first and foremost a, a, a picture. It's a, a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's a reminder of the gospel. Yeah, Romans 6 says it so well, what, what baptism is. You just read that passage. It's, it is identification with Christ. It is, uh, in a real way, a public recreation of what you've experienced you know, through the conversion experience, you know, and we do, you pointed this out. We do this, Baptists do this so uniquely for two reasons. One, we do it as it always follows conversion. Mm -hmm. It is not, it never precedes conversion and it is not a part of conversion. So that distinguishes us from some other Christians. But in addition, we do it by immersion. Those two things together distinguishes from us from most of the rest of the Christian world, if you do, if you believe both of those things, which the word you mentioned, the, bab, the word baptizo means immersion. Mm -hmm. 
it means to get under the water. I mean, they didn't translate it in, you know, in the King James to the word immerse because some of them were Anglicans and that would have caused problems for them because they weren't immersing their people. Right. So we actually became known as Baptist because of our unique way of practicing baptism. If you asked people, what is the Baptist distinctive? Most people would probably think it's baptism. Weirdly enough, I don't think that. Why would they think that, Clay? <laughs> Maybe it's because it's our name. <laughs> but we got the name because of the persecution we were experiencing for this topic. Baptists just so firmly believed you shouldn't be baptizing infants because they had not made a profession of faith in Christ. Right. And we'll, we'll talk maybe more about that in a second. But also that after the moment of profession of faith in Christ, after the moment of conversion, they were baptizing people in some, pla- case, in some places, they were calling them rebaptizers, also called dippers or dunkers. Like they were calling them all these names because they both sprinkled people and they were doing it either as a sacrament for salvation or doing it before salvation. And so, you know, we get, we get this name as that being our, our big distinctive. There's no one distinctive, but that is, this is the one of the ones we get really known for. Mm-hmm. And it's why we got called Baptists. So, um, which I don't mind that. Baptist sounds better than immersers. <laughs> yeah, it really does. We don't want to be a, fe- uh, we go to fellowship immersion church or immerser <laughs> church. Baptist just rolls wow. better. I, I think, you know, uh, <laughs> just from a very pragmatic standpoint, if we were to plant churches in like the deep South where there's a Baptist church on every corner. Maybe that's what we need to start doing <laughs> is starting like first immersion church and seeing what people say about it. It actually kind of sounds like a modern church name. It really does. Just go with immersion church. Oh, wow. <laughs> what people don't know is they're coming to a Baptist church, <laughs> literally a Baptist church. No, but you, you can see in history how seriously Baptists took this issue because even in the face of harsh persecution, they still were like, no, we, we've got to find a body of water to put these people in. And that's a, often historically a very public exercise. But it's, it's, a, it's the answer to that is found in basic Baptist convictions about what baptism is. Um, you look to the scriptures, it was always immersion. That's the way the apostles baptized people. Um, it's important that we do it that way. Why? First, because it's what, they, it's what baptism is. Yep. The biblical example is that you put somebody's entire body in water. So it's the first reason to do it is because it's what the Bible is teaching. We should just be very careful taking liberties with what the Bible teaches on, on stuff. And this is one that a lot of church traditions take a lot of liberty with. Hey, we'll just do it some different way. You know, I'll pour water on somebody or I'll sprinkle water on somebody. I, the Baptists have said, no, we're not taking that liberty. That's not what the apostles did. So that's not what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it's what the Bible teaches. But secondly, it's an actual picture. Romans 6 says it's a picture. We're buried, by, we're buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. The baptismal experience, the way Baptists practice it, is to actually bury somebody in the water and raise them again, symbolizing that new life in Christ. You, can't, you don't get that with a, with a sprinkling or with no. a pouring. It, it kind of destroys the picture. So if, if baptism is both a ceremony for the church and for the new believer, but also a testimony of the gospel, then you're ruining the picture of that testimony of the gospel that public testimony by doing it some other way. It doesn't really get the picture. When you, st- when you stand out there and you say, we're buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection or something like that, you are making a very clear picture of the gospel. And that's something to remember about both of these ordinances is that they are first and foremost pictures and representations and reminders of the gospel. That's it. 
Absolutely. And baptism is not at all a part of salvation. It's not at all. It is completely distinct from salvation. It's not the same thing. It is not, uh, it is not a part of salvation. It is not required for salvation. You are saved by faith alone, mm-hmm. by God's grace in the person and work, finished work of Jesus Christ. A good example of this is the thief on the cross. Josh and I were just talking about this before the episode. He never got baptized. Jesus didn't say, well, it stinks you can't be baptized. <laughs> yeah. No, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You, you're going to be there. Don't worry about it. So you're, you're not saved by baptism. So, what, so what, then why is it important? That's the, that's the real question. And you, you mentioned it earlier. It's a symbol of the gospel and it is a public testimony. It is, the, it is a ceremony. I heard one person describe it this way. He said, it's like a wedding. What, is, what about a wedding makes you married? When you go to a wedding, if you're sitting there, if you're somebody, is it her walking down the aisle that makes her married? Is, is, it, the, is it the vows themselves? Is it saying the vows that makes you married? Is it, wait, people, what, is, it, is it putting the ring on that makes you married? No, putting the ring on doesn't make me married to my wife. So why do I wear the ring? It is an outward manifestation. It's an outward symbol of a something that's not, it doesn't exist in objective reality. You can't go somewhere and find, oh, look at this. This is the, this is the marriage of Clay and Lydia. The, the closest thing you can get is these rings we're wearing. So that's why we wear them. It's, a, it's an outward manifestation of something that's not observable in objective reality. So that's what baptism is supposed to be. It's a ceremony of sorts. We're talking about this identification with Christ. It's a ceremony of sorts to demonstrate before witnesses, just like a wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, you go, you, you mentioned this last episode. I want to repeat it. When you go to a wedding, you're not just uh, an attender of the wedding. The whole point of it being a public spectacle is so that those witnesses can attest to the fact that these people made these vows here today. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we don't really practice this much anymore, but the idea is that you're going to hold those people accountable for their vows. Yep. Yeah, I saw you say that you would be faithful. I saw that you said, I, you said that. And baptism is the same thing. It's, it's so that before the church, the church can receive you into their number. Uh, you mentioned where it says you're baptized into Christ over there in Matthew two, it says baptizing into the name of the father, the son, and the Holy ghost. Matthew Lyon says on his podcast, he mentions, he says, you're taking just like in, in a wedding, you're taking somebody else's name in baptism. You're taking the name of Christ. Yep. It is a public ceremony whereby you take the name of Christ. And so by baptize, by being baptized into Christ, how, how can you be baptized into Christ? What does that mean? Well, it's to be baptized into his body, which is the church. And now this is where we're going to probably differ with some people. And I think this is kind of, I think there's room for this, you know, a little bit of differences on it. We would believe that because Christ gave the ordinance to the church, that first and foremost, it is important that the church be the one administering the ordinance. Joe Schmo can't just lead someone to Christ out in another city and be like, oh, let's go, let's go baptize you right now. We believe this is a local church ordinance and that it is important that it goes through the local church. But we had also argued that because in the New Testament, it would appear that baptism, yes, it always followed salvation, but it always seemed to be very, very close to church membership. We would have have the persuasion that baptism is also entering into the church. Yeah, they're they they they're inextricably linked in scripture. You don't really see membership talked about in the in the New Testament. It doesn't talk well, about I mean, church membership. There, there's, it like wasn't a necessary thing because there was really a hand, only a handful of churches. And by being baptized, being saved and being baptized, you were just you were telling everyone, "I'm linking up with these people." Yeah, that was that was sort of the the rite of passage to being a member of the church. Yeah, there there was you see there there's a 
a unity with Christ's body. That baptism signified a unity with Christ and a unity with Christ's body. There's no really space in the New Testament for somebody to say, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. Right. That wasn't a thing in the New Testament. And, and it happens a lot today, but I think the church should be very careful about, about affirming people as believers who don't get baptized and join themselves to a local church. It's not that we're saying if you don't get baptized, you're lost or that if you're not a member of a church, you're lost. No, we're not saying that. Nobody's saying that. But the church in, in the process of affirming somebody as of the number, a Christian, a disciple, we should be very careful about doing that. And, and if we're going to do that, why wouldn't we ask them, why wouldn't we call them into discipleship and see how they respond to that? The, the New Testament church, Acts chapter two, it doesn't tell us everybody who made, it doesn't say 3000 made a profession of faith. It said they were, they were added to the church. They received the word. Right. Were baptized. They received the word, were baptized. So people being added to the church is the way that we affirm that the church is accepting them into the number. And like we mentioned last time we recorded, there was a lot more at stake in the first century than there is today. And, and that's not to say there's not anything at stake. There's other parts of the, of the world that being saved and baptized is massively huge. If we're talking about a country like Iran and you trust Christ as your savior and you say, I'm going to get baptized, like that's it. You're probably done. You're never going to speak to your family again, more than yeah. likely. Your, your dad might just try to kill you. It's a serious issue. That's what they were facing in the first century church. Today in America, we live in cultural Christianity. Unfortunately, the, the way that people view Christianity is with a thimble full of commitment. And so you trust Christ for any benefits that may come along with being a, a Jesus follower, quote unquote. And that's, to me, and that's, this is where I'm at on it, to me, that's where we have to maybe slow down a little bit look at our context, especially for us. Like we're here in the deep South. Everyone and their mother is saved and their dogs are saved and, <laughs> e you know, everything is saved. And so someone joins your number and says, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a saved person. I'd like to be baptized. Well, what does it mean to be, <laughs> to be saved? Like maybe we need to slow down a little bit and, and uh, do some encouraging, do some teaching do some discipling before we toss somebody up in the waters and dunk them. First Peter three actually talks about baptism and it says, um, it's talking about Noah uh, saved. He says eight souls were saved. Um, and it says the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And it puts it in parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So he's saying the, the, the baptism doesn't, doesn't cleanse you of sin. It's just an act of obedience. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. What's interesting about that to me is you're, you're talking about slowing down and treating this with some seriousness. We talked about it before we were recording today. In those days, the cultural pressure was not to be a Christian. Exactly. You had to rebel against the, the norms of your society and perhaps your family to be a Christian. In our church today, my kids, if, any, if there's any pressure at all, it's pressure to be a Christian. So you don't see that obvious trend of discipleship for a, for a kid, for a Christian kid, or, or for somebody who, who goes to our church. You know, I, how would I, what, what else is he supposed to do? He, well, I mean, there's no option for my kid not to come to church. And to be fair, like our society is obviously trending away from Christianity being a, the favorable sure. option. And so there is definitely the possibility that we get to a place 
in American society where aligning with the gospel and with Christianity and the church is a much more important thing. But I personally believe right now, church membership, Christianity has been so very devalued. It's like I mentioned on Twitter last night, the danger of believing that you baptize someone into church membership is that you just start dunking people, adding them to your role, and then you never disciple them and you never see them grow and mature as a believer. Yeah, so baptism is one step in the discipleship process, for sure. That's something that should continue. What we're arguing is not that baptism should be treated as this untouchable, sacred thing that, 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 you know, you have to jump through all these hoops for. We're just saying maybe a little bit more seriousness than we have. Sure. It's not the same thing as being say as, as trusting Christ for salvation. It's an, it's an, it's a step of obedience after that. And so for sure we should be encouraging people to do it, but it's okay if you, if your church has a process that says, Hey, we want to see you here at church for a while. We want to see evidence that you're a disciple of Christ and that you hunger and after righteousness, you're trying to follow Christ before we baptize you because baptizing you is identifying you with us as a church. And it's a, it's a crucial step of church membership. And like we've said, the, the, the scripture doesn't really make the distinction between baptism and church membership. And truthfully, that's, that makes sense because you're identifying publicly with Christ and you're identifying publicly as a part of Christ's body, both universal and local. You're part of both. You're part, you're part of the bride of Christ at large, but you're also part of a local, you're, you're, you're identifying with a local church when you go to that church and ask to be baptized by that church. So just treating it with a little bit of seriousness and, and you know, taking a second to think through how you're doing it and why you're doing it that way. And obviously if someone approached you and was like, hey, I'd like to be baptized, we're not going to be like, oh, let's withhold baptism from people who are desiring it. No, someone who gets saved and is desiring baptism is probably without being like prompted to go after it. There's, there's gotta be something there. That's a sign automatically that they want the right things. Yeah. Sure. And, and I know that with people that I've led to Christ, I let them know right away, Hey man, the next step will be for you to get baptized and for you to begin discipleship and learning more about Christ and about God's word. And so seeing their response to that is, is, is all we're saying is seeing what their response to that is. Do they, do they start coming to church whenever they can? Do they, do they seem to have that hunger for the things of, of God and for the God's word. And, and so that's important. Absolutely. Before we add people to the church membership. One last thing is, you know, as to the timing of baptism, we're kind of talking about that. It is the reason why we don't baptize infants mm-hmm. because it is after salvation. It is an act of obedience for believers. And there's arguments that happen about infant baptism and, and we don't have to get into all of those today, but the arguments usually stem from, from Old Testament practices about circumcision. And they try to apply that to the New Testament body of Christ. And they say that children, you know, are born into, who are born into Christian families are born into the promise of Abraham. That's not, that's not biblically accurate. You're conflating things when you make that argument. You're saying that because Abraham's lineage in the Old Testament was ethnic. To be born into a Jewish family, you were a Jew. To be born into a Christian family does not make you a Christian. Right. Those two things are not the same. And so what they basically say is baptism is the New Testament sign, just as circumcision was the Old Testament sign. And they conflate those two covenant, you know, the the, the covenant of Abraham and basically says we've been made part, we've been made spiritual uh, inheritors of Abraham's covenant, the blessings, the promise. And, And Galatians does teach that. 
But making those two things the same and saying, because they circumcised children or infants on the eighth day or whatever, then we should baptize infants. You're conflating two things that aren't the same. You are not a part of the bride of Christ because you're born into a Christian family. You were a Jew when you were born into a Jewish family. And that was an ethnic, God's people was a nation state. Where's the nation of Christianity today? It's, it's every nation, it's every people, it's every tribe. And how do you become part of it? It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And you're, not, and you're not born into it by a physical birth. You're born into it by a spiritual birth. Jesus makes this distinction when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, we're not talking about being born of water. Right. We're talking about being born of the spirit of God. The Abrahamic covenant, whereby you were born into a Jewish family and became part of the Jewish covenant, covenant that God made with Abraham was physical. That was a water birth. Jesus is saying this is different. Um, and so we should treat it differently. The New Testament model, you never, you don't see them baptizing babies in the New Testament. I don't see it. Um, so there are arguments for it and I'm, and I'll listen to them and I've got, I've talked to Presbyterians who make the case and I've talked to people who make a really good case. Like they'll go through the Bible and they'll, and they'll find passages of scripture and, you know, they'll point things out and we could go into all that. We don't, I don't think we need to. But there's arguments out there. I just don't see the compelling argument from Scripture. Yeah, Harvey wrote in the books, The Church, Its Polity and Ordinances. On page 114, he said, For this reason, the ordinances cannot be administered to infants because in their case, it is not and cannot be the conscious, personal act of a free, intelligent, moral agent, but must be the unconscious, enforced act of a being not yet capable of intelligent, true worship. There is here neither an intellectual apprehension of the truths symbolized nor a voluntary exercise of faith in them. And the symbols in such cases can only be meaningless forms representing no corresponding spiritual realities in the soul. I really like how he put that there. An infant has no, as he says, ability of a free, intelligent, moral agent to first trust Christ and then even after that, to make the decision to be baptized, it is something that is placed upon them. Yeah. And, and, it, and it goes back to what we were saying about baptism being sort of synonymous in scripture with being part of the local church. Are, are we saying that children are members of the church? Right. Are, are they submitted to all of the things that that entails? Are they part of the, are they, are they part of the local church body in all of the ways? Because we've talked about it in previous episodes, in church autonomy and in, and in uh, priesthood. Are we actually conferring that upon these children? No, we're not. And so uh, a 10-day-old child cannot assent to all those things. Right. As, as the quote you just read says, they can't possibly understand it and assent to it. So, so that's why it doesn't fit. They've not made that decision. They've not made that public profession. And biblically, that's when, after that, you, we can argue, how long do you wait? Do you do it right away? Whatever. <laughs> One thing we don't need to argue about, because it's clear in scripture, it's after conversion. Yes. That's not something that uh, scripturally is ever deviated from, not in the New Testament. Which leads us then to the second ordinance, which is the Lord's Supper. We see this first mentioned in scripture in Matthew chapter number 26, also Mark 14 and Luke 22, as Jesus was with his disciples and they, uh, I'll just read it. It says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. 
And then Paul reiterates it and gives instructions to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, which is probably what most of us hear when we are going through the, the Lord's Supper in our uh, individual churches. Mm-hmm. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 says the Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself and his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. I think you mentioned this the last time we talked about this. When the disciples were taking of the Lord's Supper, they knew there that this bread that they ate, the cup that they drank, was not literally the body and blood of Christ. And, and Christ even said to them, I think it's in Luke. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure right off the top of my head, but I believe it was in Luke. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Yeah, that's, it's hard for me when, when people talk about transubstantiation which is this belief that it turns into the actual body and blood of the Lord. And there's different variations of this. Some people are like, well, it doesn't turn physically into the body of the blood of the Lord, but something, but something spiritually happens to the actual physical elements. There's a lot of beliefs like along that train, along that spectrum. I don't think you can get just from a reading of the scripture to those places because that's not what he said. The point of it, the point of communion, the point of the Lord's Supper is stated in the very scriptures where it was instituted, where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, take these physical actions that we're taking right now, do it to remember me. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a remembrance. So adding to that and taking his language where he says, this is my blood, this is my body, you know, this is broken for you. He clearly was being symbolic and the disciples did not believe that they were eating the physical body of Jesus. They wouldn't even, earlier, they wouldn't even let him wash their feet. There's no way they would have felt that they were actually physically eating his body and drinking his actual blood. So I, I, I struggle with, I think church tradition clouds our judgment on this stuff. We allow stuff we've heard or the way our church has done things or the way our church tradition has handled some of these issues to get involved when we when we put all that stuff into the text, it, it clearly just, all the only thing it clearly says is that it's, it's a remembrance of Jesus and what he did for us. Um, and so we, we use the term ordinance here. Some people use the term sacraments. We, we don't believe it's a sacrament in that it is not required for salvation. And a lot of people use the word sacrament and that's what they mean. I know Baptists who use the word sacrament. We, we typically say ordinance just to be more clear. But if you're saying sacrament, we want to make sure that it's never intended to imply uh, that either of the that either of these two ordinances, these sacraments, whatever you want to call them, they're not necessary for a person to be saved. Um, they're symbols, um, but they're nevertheless a significant part of um, of Baptist practice and worship. So, but the and the use of them is important. You know, we talked. You were just talking about the Lord's Supper, and you read that passage. You know, using the correct elements is important. Just like I said earlier, we shouldn't take liberties with baptism. We shouldn't take a bunch of liberties with the Lord's Supper either. Jesus instituted it at his last meal uh, as part of the Jewish Passover. The unleavened bread and the wine were part of the meal. The unleavened bread, Jesus indicates that it's symbolic of his body and the, and the wine is symbolic of his blood. The, the unleavened bread is symbolizing his purity, the purity of Christ. Uh, Hebrews 4 says that he was without sin. And so his, his body was an unblemished sacrifice for our sins. The juice 
the, the wine is a symbol of, of Christ uh, because grapes are crushed to make that. And so it, and it, and it bleeds, that juice bleeds out. Uh, that's a symbolizing of the fact that Christ was crushed for us. And so in partaking of the bread and of the cup, disciples of Christ are remembering his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary as he gave his body and shed his blood for our sins. We believe that the elements used in the supper, they're not literally the body and blood of Christ, but they're nevertheless important. They are symbols, but they're not just symbols. They're very important symbols to the life and worship and practice of the church. Just as baptism is a testimony of the gospel, the Lord's Supper is the only other thing we do that are sort of, that are ordinances. We don't have a lot of rituals. Baptists don't do a lot of that traditional stuff that some other denominations do. These are the only two ordinances we have. They're very important ordinances though, and they're both tools, they're both symbols, they're both sacred duties as it relates to the public witness of the church. And it's one of the things, one of the reasons we get known for baptism uh, and how we do the Lord's Supper is because they're, they are very public elements of what makes a church, what, it, what a church is and what they believe. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to recall Christ's sacrifice for us, to obey, obey a command of Christ and to, and to celebrate his presence with us and his, and his, his return. It, it's, and Paul seems to indicate in 1 Corinthians 11 that there's a, that there's a way to drink and eat unworthily, to take it unworthily, which is to say to take it in an unworthy manner. And, and what does that mean? I mean, is it, is it, it's possible to take it too lightly, to not do it in remembrance, to, to do it um, where you're not truly reflecting on what Christ did for you. You're not meditating on the gospel as you do it. He refers to uh, coming in too hungry so that when you eat, you're just eating because you're hungry. He's saying, don't do that, eat at home. <laughs> so maybe that's a way of, of taking it too lightly. He also talks about examining yourself. You know, he talks about uh, let every man examine himself. And, and he says that there are people who, you'll experience the judgment of God, he says. You'll, you'll drink damnation to yourself. And he says to judge yourself so that you're not judged, so that you don't need to be judged by God. I think that points to possibly a way to drink un and eat unworthily is to not be, to come take it lightly in the fact that you're not committing yourself as a disciple of Christ, you know, because that's what this is a reminder of. Peter says that he did all these things that we could follow his steps. Jesus says, if you follow me, you take up my cross and you follow me. So to reflect on the gospel is not just to reflect on the fact that he saved you. It's to reflect on the way that he's changed your life. It's, it's to reflect on the fact that what he did for you, what it, what, it, what it asks of you. And to do that too lightly and to come in in sin, to come in, in in open sin perhaps, and to not take that seriously is possibly a way to take it in an unworthy manner. You know, you're, you're here, you're partaking a part of an important ordinance and you're a part of a local church and you're doing, you're, you're living in a way that dishonors God. I think that maybe that's a way I'm just spitballing here. We're just talking through sure. this. I think there's a couple of different interpretations for this passage. Would you say along those lines though, would you say if a, a person comes in and is in good standing in their congregation, should they refuse your, the elements? If they're, if they're living in open sin and they know what you're saying? So for instance, I, I can remember a particular time when I know someone who, who intentionally chose not to partake of the Lord's Supper. From what I knew, there was no open sin, egregious, terrible sin. They just said that they had sin in their heart so they wouldn't take it. I, I could see somebody refusing the supper if they were, if they were acknowledging that they were uncommitted to being a disciple. 
like, hey, I don't, I don't, because to, because to not take the sus- supper is to be in disobedience. Yeah, but, but if you don't take the, because you have sin in your heart doesn't mean you're not a disciple. No, I, I agree with that. I don't think to be a sinner or to be struggling with sin or to be battling sin is a reason to not take the Lord's Supper. I agree with that. You, you, you need to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, a, is, is, is an obedience thing to Christ. So if you're not, not going to take it, it literally needs to be because whether it, it needs to be because to me that your mentality is, hey, I might be sitting in a church right now but I am uncommitted to following Christ and I'm in, and I am, I am regarding iniquity in my heart. I am, I am uh, engaging in active open sin and I have no, and I'm unrepentant for it. To me, that would be a reason to maybe not take the Lord's supper because you're, you could bring to yourself damnation. That's fair. You could be taking it unworthily. You're not taking it. You're taking it too lightly, but otherwise I don't think somebody who's just struggling with sin should, should refuse it because now you're, you're making the Lord partaking of the Lord's supper dependent on your, your worthiness in yourself and in your, and in your, your spiritual accomplishment. That's not what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is remembering his accomplishment on our behalf. So it is not something that we need to sit around and overanalyze our, our life. You know, whether or not you're striving to follow Christ, whether or not you're a disciple. I'm not saying you didn't sin yesterday or that you didn't sin today. I'm saying that at this moment, you're saying, I desire to follow Christ. I think if you can say that with a clear conscience, then you should take the Lord's Supper. Because that's it's because it's not a it's not a it's not a work for it's not like we said it's not a sacrament for salvation and so you're not justified by your works, right? So that shouldn't be a requirement for taking Lord's Supper. But I think you it is fair to say that if somebody I would understand if somebody was living in open sin and was unrepentant for it for them saying hey this is I'm living in obe- disobedience anyway and I don't want to drink damnation to myself if that's what Paul's teaching I don't want to be a part of that I could see that being the case. But this is also why we, Josh, in terms of, in terms of specifics, it's why we don't offer the cup to just anyone. Yeah. I was about to, about to bring that up. Go, go ahead. I was going to say, if that's the case, then what position in your opinion should a a church take on the supper? Now I think we would all readily reject open communion in that it doesn't matter no, if you, you know, if you've not anything, made a, you just come and take the take the elements. We would reject that. Uh, there's been lots of debate on close and closed communion, and so could you define that just for a moment for anybody who's listening? Sure. So close communion would be the close would be that you've been saved and you're part of a church of like faith and practice, and then you can partake of the Lord's Supper with with our church, the church that you're at in the moment. Closed would be, it is a local church ordinance for the, the the church. There, only those who are members of the church can partake of the Lord's Supper. Me personally, that my take on it, I'm a closed communion guy. I'm not going to be upset at anybody if they choose close. I there's no problem with it, whatever. But because of what we were just talking about, someone living in unrepentant sin one of the perils of close communion is they could be visiting your church from a church across town, be in unrepentant sin, and you have no idea about that. They could be sitting under church discipline even. Mm. And as they enter into your congregation, they partake of the elements. Well, yikes. Do we really want to put that out there for somebody? So I personally, as a safeguard, as a practical safeguard, I think it's best to limit 
who can take the supper to those who are in your personal congregation. That's like, for me, I have not always thought that way either. But for me now, if I go to another church and they're taking of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to pass on You're going to take with your local church. Yeah. I, I can see the merit in that position. I think it, there's a strong case to be made for that because like you said, they could be fleeing accountability, uh, the accountability of church discipline at their local church. And so they come to your church and you offer them the, the Lord's Supper. The, the pushback would be, the, the pushback against that would be perhaps to say, hey, if they're, aren't, aren't they responsible for whether or not they're right with God? Isn't that up to them? And so that, that's a fair point, I think, too. Yeah, it's, it's up to them. And in a real way, even people who are part of your church, you don't know for sure that they're faithfully following Christ. The, the question would be, if you're going to, to push back in that way, that I would say is the, the pushback to that would be the, the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. It's not an individual ordinance. So we can be a little too individualistic sometimes with this stuff yeah. where it's like, oh, if I want the Lord's Supper, I should be able to take the Lord's Supper. Well, no, no, not really. It's a church ordinance. And so churches give the Lord's Supper. A local church gives the Lord's Supper, not one individual. You can't take the Lord's Supper at home by yourself, just like you can't, just like you can't baptize yourself. I can't just fall into a, into a stream and be like, I'm baptized. <laughs> so these are church ordinances. So it is important to, to realize that. So when you go to a church, you're asking that church to give you the Lord's Supper. And so they have the right to, to, make a, to make those distinctions and say, hey, we only, we only give it to members. If you would like to take the Lord's Supper here, then we would like you to come for a while. We'd like you to be a part of our church uh, to take the Lord's Supper here. I think there's a strong case to be made for that. And I, like you said, I don't think there's uh, hard and fast rules on this. There is a lot, there is a, there's a lot of churches who do close communion where, hey, if, you, if you've made a profession of faith and you're a member of another a church in good standing and you and you tell us that we'll we'll give you the Lord's Supper. I'm open to that too. I, I know people who are open communion. Really? Know, and yeah. And they say don't refuse it to anyone. It's up to them. It's up to them whether that, or not they're in their Baptist? Yeah. Wow. So that's a first for me. I've never really heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. There 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 are people who do that. And they and they make the case from Judas. Ah. They say he was he took the he took of the cup. Um you want to talk about a real life example of somebody drinking to themselves damnation. <laughs> But I would, my argument to that would be, and I would be interested in hearing pushback on this to the people who say that is he was actually one of the number. He was a disciple at that time. Mm. He had not, even though in his heart, he was entertaining sin. We know that. And Jesus had prophesied his betrayal. We see no evidence at that point from his outward actions that the disciple, the disciples didn't have any reason to believe that Judas was, was a traitor. They didn't know that. Um, and so Jesus predicts that and it, and it fleshes itself out in the Lord's Supper. He, he makes that prediction in it and, it and it happens right there. He, he sort of um, exposes him there. At that moment, he was a disciple. And so it's important to say, hey, maybe a pushback against that would be the disciples probably would have refused him the cup had they known, had it been obvious and clear to them what he was doing. And so there, there, there is an element to which you are individually responsible. But there's also a degree to which local churches are responsible for who they give that cup to. Harvey wrote in the book, The Church, It's Polity and Ordinances, kind of as we wrap up, I'd like to, to read this. He continued on page 114. He says, The ordinance, therefore, are not magical forms conveying a secret, mysterious grace to those who receive them. The benefits they confer are these. One, as vivid representations of the central facts and truths of Christianity, they present them in a most distinct and affecting manner to the mind and bring them in most direct contact with it. And two, 
as in receiving them, the believer makes a personal profession of faith in Christ. His faith in them is expressed in a definite and most expressive act and is thereby strengthened. They set before the soul a more vivid view of Christ and awaken in it a deeper consciousness of union with him. Going back once again, at the end of the day, we have to remember something about the ordinances. They are, for a most basic definition, a reminder, a representation of the truths of the gospel. And it has been the historic belief of of Baptists that the ordinances are symbolic memorials, not salvific rites or sacramental impartation of grace. These ordinances have been set forth by Christ and the New Testament as steps of obedience and testaments to our own transformation because of Christ and constant reminders of gospel truth. So I think as we proceed on with this, at the end of the day, that's what we have to come back to. When you see the Lord's Supper, you're reminded of the atonement of the gospel. When you see baptism, you're reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ of the gospel. Don't get so caught up with the particulars that you forget do this in remembrance of me. Don't, yeah. don't get too far away from, from that very specific, very concrete thing. And then, you know, we, there's, Josh, do you have any opinion on, on maybe how often somebody takes the Lord's Supper? Uh, see, this is, I know we're in opinion section yeah, that's here, but of, that's <laughs> difficult. My experience has been, it's been different. Like I've been in some churches where it's once a quarter. And I've been in some churches where it's once a year. I don't want to, I don't want to over, oof, that sounds kind of rough, huh? I don't want to overdo it as far as the Lord's Supper goes because you don't want it to lose the the importance and the significance. But I also don't want to underdo it, if I can yeah. say it that way. Well, you could probably, you could probably take it too lightly in either direction. You could probably do it. I think you could do it. You can certainly do it so much that, that it's, that it's ritualistic and, there's no, there's nothing special about it. There's also possible. I believe there's a way to do it so little, absolutely that that it's so rare that you're not. Are you are you actually how often are you actually doing this in remembrance of him? Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a balance between those two things, and there's freedom for sure. But I've it's something that I've thought about. I know Baptist churches tend to do it. Most churches that I've been a part of do it once a year. Uh, I was in a church one at one point that we did it twice a year. I think I could ha- I could personally just just a preference. I could handle it doing it more. Oh yeah, I think I'm kind of of the persuasion like once a month. Wow, once yeah. a month. Mm-hmm. I, I, but even at that, you run the risk of, you know, are you gonna overdo it and make it too common? Yeah, just wait a little too common, you know. So maybe, yeah, maybe bi-monthly is better. I don't know. I've I've looked all through the Bible. I even looked in the concordance and maps and I can't see where it says how many times <laughs> you're supposed you, to do it. It just says as often as you do it, do it remembrance of me. It doesn't yeah. say how. He he kind of Paul leaves it up to the churches. Yeah, exactly. As often as you do it, do it this way. What do you what do you guys think? The listeners are out there. You tell us what you think. The baptism and the Lord's Supper both have areas of freedom for the local church. So if you have an opinion, let us know. Not in the practice of them. You're supposed to do it, but in the pragmatic sure. working out of all yeah, of Yeah, in the things. application to your local church. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear somebody, some of your thoughts. Clay, you want to let everybody know about our most recent merchandise that we're making available? Yeah, we have a mug. Yeah, dude. Coffee, because that's important to us here on the Young Baptist Podcast. Yeah, the very next thing after the t-shirt had to be a coffee mug. Absolutely. And I, I thought I'd throw this out there. We're not trying to like get rich off the podcast. Uh, 
That's why the mug is only forty nine ninety nine. <laughs> No, I'm the, kidding. The, the, the mug is not forty nine ninety nine. The, the reason we're doing this stuff is to try and cover the cost of like our website expenses and our SoundCloud expenses, et cetera, et cetera. You know, maybe one day we'll be able to make enough money off of those things to purchase ourselves some decent microphones so we can record other places besides the sound booth. But yeah, we're not trying <laughs> to get rich off you guys. We're just putting it out there so you can have something cool to remember us by. Yeah, what I did Josh. there. <laughs> Yeah, Josh only pays me $25 an hour for these recordings. And so... Um, yeah, now I'm not getting paid anything because of my terrible mistake this last week. <laughs> <laughs> Something else to look forward to is next episode is Individual Soul Liberty. Josh, yes, this is my favorite Baptist distinctive. Am I allowed to have a favorite? I suppose. Yeah, this is my favorite one, Individual Soul Liberty. So we're really excited about that. And then following, that's two weeks from today. Four weeks from today, we actually have an interview on Individual Soul Liberty with. Pastor Josh Tice, the one and only of Southern Hills Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. The uh, great Baptist guy. Oh, yeah. And the one of the primary leaders of the Idea Network, which you'll talk a little more about when we actually air that episode. But I think you guys will really enjoy that interview with him. Yeah, he's led well in, in this area. And I'm looking forward to... He's a great fit for our podcast and he's a great fit for that topic. So he's, we're very excited about that. He's such a chill guy. You know, like he's just so cool to just sit down and talk to. Yeah. The, for, the word that always comes to my mind about Josh is encourager. Yes. He's such an encouraging guy. He wants people to grow in their ministry, grow in their faith, he, and grow in the Lord. And um, he's, he's whatever he can do to encourage you, he wants to do it. He just really wants to be your friend. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's a great, great, and you see that borne out in his ministry, the Idea Network. That's what it's for. It's to encourage and equip ministry leaders. Yep. So. Absolutely. Well, Clay, what do you think, man? Dunk them. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast. Podcast.